2: You're listening to the Contest and Me, a podcast from the Eurotrip.
3: Hello and welcome to the Eurotrip. We are back with you for a brand new episode of The Contest and Me.
4: Uh, it's me, James, joined by, as always, Rob Lilly. Hello. Hello, yeah, episode three of this brand new series. At what point does it become not a brand new series? Because this is now the third week of said brand new series. Is it now just a series?
3: Yeah, I feel like we can drop the word new. Maybe it was just new last year when we first brought it out. Maybe now it's just a second series uh, but it's great to be back which feels like a long time for us because we recorded the first two episodes in bulk of a long time ago so it feels like a long time for us it's not a long time for you but we're so pleased to be back with a brand new episode and this week Rob you've been having a great conversation.
4: Yeah absolutely yeah I've been away we mentioned in the last episode I've been in Canada for a couple of weeks but I am now back and was back just in time to have a chat with today's very special guest on the contest in me and he is the brilliant eurovision expert and broadcaster paul jordan you probably better know him though as dr eurovision Yeah, what a title that is. I wonder what our titles would be if we got a bit of a
3: a special Eurovision theme name. Maybe you can get in touch with those. Maybe not. I'd rather think what you'll come up
4: with. Yeah, please don't. Don't do that.
3: (laughs) But Paul is great. We've had him on the podcast a few times before. The name Dr. Eurovision, by the way, it came from um, a few years ago when he was doing a PhD in the Eurovision Song Contest, which uh, I must admit sounds absolutely fascinating. And
4: he's had such a great career since then. And Rob's going to be chatting to him all about that. Yeah, so many stories about his time when he went basically from being a fan to then an expert to then working for Eurovision themselves. So there is so much to come in today's episode here on the Eurotrips, The Contest and Me.
3: That's right. Thank you so much for joining us for a brand new episode of The Contest and Me. We've done two already. This is episode number three and we've got a whole host more coming your way over the next few weeks. If this is your first time tuning in to the Eurotrips, the contest and me, let me just explain what it's all about because we invite some of the world's biggest Eurovision fans onto the podcast and ask them all the same questions to find out how they fell in love with the contest, some of their favourite memories, and then something that they want to change. So we ask all the guests the very same question. Uh, One of those I just mentioned there What was the moment you fell in love with the Eurovision Song Contest? Because I think, although it might be a difficult question, it gets your mind racing trying to think back to that very moment. You thought, Eurovision, that's for me.
4: Yeah, it's so difficult. But we have been so grateful for literally so many of you who got in touch with the moment that you fell in love with Eurovision. We put this out on social over the weekend And we have had more responses to this than I think we've ever had responses to anything. Actually, that's not true. Do you remember when we did that uh, episode all about the UK's plan for Eurovision 2022? Almost a year (laughs) ago now. Do you remember that? Back in October, I think. Was it in October or September? October, I think, last year. Back in autumn. It
3: sort of feels like two minutes ago and yet also feels like the longest time ago possible, doesn't it?
4: Yeah, on that episode, do go back and have a listen because it's probably quite funny to listen to. You'll find out all about this mysterious record label called TAP who are going to be involved in the UK's Eurovision entry for 2022. They're going to try and find an artist. And who knows? Maybe they can turn around the UK's fortunes at Eurovision. You know how <laughs> that story ended. But yeah, loads of you have been in touch with the moment that you fell in love with the Eurovision Song Contest. Now, we got loads of you in touch on Twitter, which James is going to have a look at in a sec. But loads of you also got in touch on Insta as well. Uh, we've got Lee, who said, uh, Berka, 2007. Great choice. Playful Mitch said, 1984, on the playground at school, when we were all singing the Spanish entry. Stuart said, 2008, seeing Dust in the Turkey. That stuck with me for a long time and I was hooked. Can you imagine Dust in the Turkey being responsible for the moment that you fell in love with the Eurovision? You know how I feel about that. <laughs> uh, also, somebody else here saying, Rise like a phoenix winning. Yeah, that was such a big moment. And, of course, we mentioned that in the last episode of the contest and me. Emma Kelly mentioning the time that she met Conchita. And also Johanna as well. She said not a moment, well, that's what we asked, but anyway, uh, she said, not a moment, but after I moved from Sweden to Japan, it made me feel closer to home watching Eurovision. What a very nice, wholesome set of answers there. Yeah, God, yeah, absolutely. There's um, there loads of you who got in
3: touch on Twitter as well, at EuroTrip Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, by the way, for, for any of your thoughts and comments. Uh, Lorreen I've said Lorene, and it's not spelt like she Lorene. Has been in touch? I think, yeah. <laughs> uh, Lorene, I think that's how you pronounce your name. Uh, it's got in touch to say, I discovered Eurovision in 2014 and the opening of the grand final with all those flags. It was amazing and made me fall in love. Uh, James as well. Got in touch and said, although I distinctly remember Bucks Fizz winning in 1981 when I was eight, I knew Eurovision was destined to be my lifelong companion a year later when Portugal opened the contest. 36 years later, I sang it in a bar with fans in Lisbon when Portugal finally got to host the extravaganza. Yeah, imagine that. 36 years on, being able to sort of hark back to the moment you fell in love.
4: You bringing the conversation back to Eurovision 2018 in Lisbon is exactly the same as me bringing the conversation back to junior Eurovision 2018 in Belarus. It's exactly the (laughs) same thing. You still manage to find a way of doing it every single week, I'm sure.
3: It's it's the first time I went to the contest. So for me, it'll always
4: hold a, a very special place in my heart. I've got good reason to bring it back. Perhaps that was the moment that you fell in love with Eurovision. Who knows?
3: Who knows, maybe the Eurotrip will invite me on for an episode of The Contest of Me I can like, chat all about my love for it.
4: That's when we know that the booking of guests has gone very badly.
3: <laughs> Thanks to everybody who got in touch, like we said, on Twitter and Instagram. We are at Eurotrip Podcast. Please keep getting in touch with us on the email as well, hello at Eurotrippodcast.com. We always love to hear from you and we'll read some more out on next week's episode. This is the Eurotrip.
4: When you aren't listening, you can find us on social media.
3: We're at Eurotrip Podcast.
2: Warming you up for the Eurovision Song Contest.
4: So thank you everyone for tuning in yet again this week on whether we're calling it a brand new series of The Contest and Me, whether we're just calling it this series of The Contest and Me. If you don't know, by the way, this is series two, series one we did last summer. There are loads of brilliant episodes you can listen to with other well-known Eurovision fans hearing about their relationship with the Eurovision Song Contest. Just uh, scroll down the timeline and you will find it. You might have to scroll quite away because it was a year ago, Scroll down the timeline and you can find those episodes as well. Yeah, but this series so far, of course, we've
3: spoken to Steve Holden and Emma Kelly was last week. Uh, Let me just read a couple of more tweets just in response to those episodes specifically. Uh, So thanks to Will who got in touch saying, Hooray, the contest and me is back. Uh, much of what Steve shared resonate with me, memories of recording the audio from the tele-speaker. Yeah, when you mentioned that, that was, uh, that was great fun. Maybe to a specific audience, maybe a, um, a younger audience. Doesn't quite understand the, the significance of that. Uh, Jamie as well said, very exciting to start listening to this episode on one of the shortlisted cities for Eurovision 2023. Of course, all that's happened since we last recorded. We recorded the last two episodes weeks and weeks ago before the shortlist was announced.
4: I'm just pleased that we've managed to find time in your busy media schedule to uh, get you to appear <laughs> on your own podcast. Honestly, we could <laughs> move for you on there, on media outlets.
3: Honestly, we couldn't split duties when the shortlist was announced. You were away on holiday in Canada, so I did about 243,000 media (laughs) interviews on the day instead of half of that, which I imagine I would have done if if you were around. Uh, But let me quickly mention as well uh, this tweet from Lee, who said... I agree, this is in response to the episode with Emma Kelly, I agree about 2018 being one of my favourite contests too. Oh, like I said, we, we can go. always
4: bring it back to 2018. Here we go, here we go. Well, <laughs> I'm now going to attempt to wrestle the conversation away from 2018 because it is time for today's guest on The Contest and Me. Now, we've already mentioned him at the top of the show. He is Paul Jordan, Eurovision expert, broadcaster and the only man in the world with the title of Dr. Eurovision. Now, his love of Eurovision goes back a very long way, as you will hear very, very soon. But Eurovision has become not just something that he enjoys, not just a hobby, but also became his professional working life for a time as well. So we'll find out how he went from fan to actually working for Eurovision, and then also coming out the other side as well, which he's done now.
3: Yeah, there's so much great chat in this. We're going to talk about the 1980s, 1990s, 2000s and the modern day and potentially, well, definitely a little bit about the future as well, because the very last question is a hypothetical one, but probably one of my favourite questions is the one change you'd like to see at the contest. chat about how he would like to see the contest develop in the future.
4: Yeah, there's also talk of a bit of a hairy taxi journey in Belgrade in Serbia back in 2008, so you'll hear mention of that as well. But with so much to look forward to, let's crack on with it. Here it is then, here is my chat with the brilliant Paul Jordan, Dr Eurovision, on The Contest and Me. Paul Jordan, welcome to The Contest and Me. Thank you very much, thanks for having me. It is brilliant to have you on. Now, Paul, people may know you better for your other name, which is often used in association with the Eurovision Song Contest, which is, of course, Dr. Eurovision. Paul, remind us how you came to become known as said Dr. Eurovision. (laughs) Yeah, it was... um...
2: A kind of chance meeting I had with a journalist back in 2011, just as so I was finishing my PhD, a lady called Helen Fawkes, and she'd covered Eurovision before in Serbia and Ukraine as well So in the years preceding. And um, she was talking to me about my research and said that I should sell myself as a kind of pundit. And she suggested the name sort of playing on the PhD, told me to set up a Twitter account and a website, and I did. And then it sort of took off. I was very lucky and very fortunate to be invited to be part of the semifinal coverage. I think the first time was in 2012. And then they had me back for a couple of years. And then it's often the case, you know, you meet people or people notice you and then other opportunities, you know, come up. So radio and TV stuff. So very, very lucky um it took me to many places that i didn't expect it to you know i even went to america as part of a conference and uh, they flew me over to talk to them about eurovision in boston so i owe a lot to helen unfortunately she died in 2017 but um you know something which started out as a bit of a joke actually led to quite a big opportunity for me in terms of my career as well eventually it led to working on the song contest itself as part of their comms team um i was invited to speak at the flagship conference in 2015 for the 60th anniversary. And that's where some people from the Eurovision organization, the EBU, uh, they were there and they noticed me and I was working in communications at the time as well. So it kind of all came together and I was very privileged to work on Eurovision for a number of years. Um, and now I'm, in a different job, but in a promoted role. I work for a charity now, and I owe a lot to Eurovision, really, because if I hadn't been for that job, I wouldn't have got this one. So I owe a lot to Eurovision and also to Helen as well for, for her time and for her idea, really. It really was um, you know a fun thing to do, but also one that um, has led me to places I didn't expect to be.
4: Paul, the first question on the contest and me every time we do these chats is, of course... I look back to 2022, which seems like a strange thing to say, given that we're talking in 2022, but you know exactly what I mean. We're going to go back to Turin now. So what are your reflections on the contest that we saw this year? Um,
2: I would say it was a joyous event, and it was one that I think there was a real appetite for, especially so after the pandemic. Of course, we had 2021, and that was really special, you know, especially because it's counted in 2020. But I think it was a pretty slick show, Um, The Italians had some challenges, I'm sure. I think there was an issue with the stage and the lighting and things like that. Um, But I think overall, it was a great show. I had a feeling that Ukraine would win the public vote, definitely the public vote, maybe not the jury vote. Um, And I I knew really that they would win the whole contest overall. Um, I think it was a worthy winner. I think when people talk about that being a political decision, actually, I think it's more about humanitarianism and a showing of solidarity. And Ukraine are the only country left which have 100% qualification record to the grand final as well. They get Eurovision. They know how to stage their songs. And, you know, they just tend to they, they get it. They understand how the contest works. So, you know, I think they won on their own merit. I think another highlight was obviously the UK doing well this year. Um, You know, we've discussed previously about what the BBC and the UK need to do. And for once, it seems like the stars aligned and we had a good song with a singer who could perform and staging that worked and was modern and relevant. And so I think that was really to be welcomed is how we build on that now. And, you know, certainly with the UK staging the event next year, I think that's a really big opportunity for us to change the narrative around Eurovision. And already I see the reporting changing almost. It's not quite as tongue in cheek people are genuinely interested in terms of which city is going to host it. You know, how are they going to produce this with Ukraine and be respectful of them as winners and us stepping in to support them? And I think these are really welcome conversations and it's a nice departure from some of the quite poor journalism we had before. So I think reflecting on 2022, it was a good contest overall. Good mixture of songs in the grand final. Delighted to see Spain do so well Um, and also just reminded me that actually, when it comes to predicting how countries will do, um, I'm really quite clueless. I can tell you all about the politics, but I had Spain, when I initially heard Spain, I had them down for bottom five. So it just shows you how much I know when it comes to predictions.
4: <laughs> now, you, you mentioned actually, and you did a good job of teeing up something that we're talking about later, which is, you know, the UK, Eurovision, how do they maintain that brilliant result from 2022? When, as you said, they're hosting it, of course, next year. But you mentioned the media coverage and the media reporting. And, you know, it is night and day, isn't it, compared to what we have seen previously after Sam brilliant result. And you're brilliantly placed to talk about that change in media coverage of Eurovision, because, of course, you know, you for so many years and still are one of the main people that is often called upon to talk about the Eurovision Song Contest, whether that be on TV, on radio and you know, it must just be brilliant for someone like you to know that you might be called upon by any of these organisations and not have to, you know, roll your eyes when the inevitable questions get asked.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that was what was also refreshing about the UK doing so well, you know, put that kind of political argument to bed. And similarly, when Israel won in 2018, you know, we could actually say, do you know what, this is about music, countries win this regardless of the politics that's going on. And so that was a nice opportunity to really be able to, you know, go back to those naysayers and say, actually, it's not to do with Brexit. It's not to do with politics. It's to do with actually putting in a decent song and making an effort, and which is what we did. And we were rewarded for it. But as you say, the challenge will be to build on that momentum now. France came second, you know, in 2021, best showing they've done for, you know, more than 20 years. And uh, then they came second last (laughs) this year. So, you know, it really is unpredictable and you've got to kind of build upon these things. But I will often find the kind of coverage really quite fascinating in a lot of ways because they often have me on to talk about Eurovision. And there's been times when I've been on the radio and I would say, I would say I've not been stitched up, but certainly the presenter has gone down a certain route, which I didn't. Expect to go down. And also, I wouldn't have really agreed to the interview if I'd known it was going that way. Um, and a few times that's happened. And I always find it intriguing as to why they have me on. If they hate Eurovision so much, if they want to <laughs> criticise it so much, why do they want to have it as part of their show? I find that very odd. But, um, you know, people keep talking about it regardless of whether they like it or they don't. The fact that people are talking about it nearly 70 years later shows you must be doing something right. But this year it was nice. And certainly since the list of the UK cities has been announced. This, the coverage has been quite respectful, I think. And I, I get some people won't like it. I get there'll be critics saying that it's a waste of money, et cetera, et cetera. But those are also the same people that have no problem watching Strictly. And they'll probably be horrified to know that it costs nearly a million pounds an episode. So television is expensive. Eurovision in the grander scheme of things is pretty cheap television.
4: Paul, I always feel people like you, you know, the, the ones that have been through the real dark times with the UK and, and Eurovision and, you know, have been kind of forced to appear on, on TV and radio. I feel like you deserve a medal for your good service and trying to <laughs> uphold the name of Eurovision in front of all that difficult questioning.
2: Uh, yeah, I've got to say, I mean, it's not just me, it's a lot of the other fans as well. But it's, um, it was difficult and sometimes it was quite difficult to... Um, to justify you know especially when we had some rotten songs in the UK and it was really (laughs) challenging to kind of support them because I always try and support the UK because I know that the BBC are a small team and you know I do understand that everyone's a critic and all of that so it's not always that straightforward and you know there's a lot of considerations behind the scenes that we're not privy to so I try and be fair on them as well but it does make me laugh though now there's a, a rush of people joining the fan club I think the fan club is something like quadrupled its membership now it's like four thousand people or something and that's all well and good and that's great but it does make me laugh when people like my mum are saying oh yeah let's try and get tickets for eurovision next year so like, hold on a minute where were you when we were going to azerbaijan and serbia and russia you weren't interested so all of a sudden now it could be uh that on your doorstep you're interested which that's natural of course and if she wants to go then that'd be great but uh it is funny how a lot of the fair weather fans have come out in force
4: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you say, where were you when we had to change, you know, three times to get to, like you say, Azerbaijan going via, you know, wherever else to just to get there in 24 hours of flying or something like that. Or <laughs> the contest in Oslo, wasn't it? When there was the volcano and everyone had to get the ferry because there were no flights. And... Yeah,
2: that's dedication.
4: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, Paul, let's talk about your dedication then to the original Song Contest by going all the way back to the very, very start. So... What is your first, first Eurovision memory?
2: I've got very vague memories of kind of 1990 and Emma, but I think the first proper memory, the first contest I watched all the way through uh, was 1993 uh, with Sonia representing the UK. And I've got a very vivid memory of cheering Sonia on. There was a point when she was leading by quite a way and I've uh, been really quite excited watching it upstairs in my mum and dad's bedroom on their TV and uh, they were having a dinner party downstairs that evening. And uh, yeah, I remember all the whooping and cheering and my dad eventually coming up and you know seeing what was going on. France, eight points. France, eight points. France, eight points. United Kingdom, 10 points. United Kingdom, 10 points. Yeah, let's put the cat among the pigeons again.
3: Wyoming.
0: And he
2: thought I'd been watching some sort of program like Match of the Day or something. He didn't realize Eurovision was on. Got a bit of a surprise. And, uh, but that that was the first year that I really I got hooked, I guess. And then I looked forward to it the next year and then every year since then. And then I think 96 or 97 was the first year that I recorded it. And then, again, my parents were a bit surprised. I kept re-watching Eurovision. I'm like, you've seen this already. It's like, no, and I enjoy the music, et cetera. So, um, yeah, that was probably my formative memory. I was about nine years old then. And uh, that was really when I guess I sort of became hooked.
4: It's the second time in this series that Eurovision 93 has come up because uh, Steve Holden, of course, the host of the official Eurovision podcast and formerly at BBC Radio 1, he was the, he was the first uh, first episode we did this series. And he said his very first Eurovision memory as well was, was of that 1993 contest. And, and Sonia specifically. I mean, looking back, Paul, was Sonia robbed? Or, or actually, was it right that Ireland did win again in 93?
2: I think looking back, it was right that Ireland did win again. I think they had a better song. I think Sonia really exemplified someone who could perform and really performed. You know that song to within an inch of its life, and it shows you you can do well with a song that's not that great, but the performance comes through. And I think she had better songs in her selection that year. Um, but she gave it her all, and she really did a tremendous performance. And I think she did well to come second. But a couple of years later, I um in two thousand ten. I was in Oslo for Eurovision and I met the Irish entry that year, who was Neve Kavanagh, who had won in '93. She was representing them again. And I told her the story that I'd actually cried when Sonia had lost. (laughs) And uh, she was kind of slightly bemused and she's like, oh, well, I don't really care. I won. Then she walked off and she was just so sassy and so funny. And since then, you know, we've kept in touch and over the years, you know, various Eurovision events. And, uh, you know, she's very good friends with a friend of mine. So, our paths have crossed since and she's honestly the most lovely lady and uh, a brilliant singer so I'm delighted actually that she won looking back but that contest is also quite a special one in terms of you know, it's the first year that the the competition opened up to the east you know you had the three debut countries and I guess it's kind of almost uh, fitting that that's that's where my interest in Eurovision began but also I've got an interest in Eastern Europe in particular Estonia and Ukraine as well which is where my research focus on so it's quite sort of fitting that that contest is the one that stands out when that's the one that really I guess was the beginning of the new evolution of Eurovision into into the present day really.
4: Oh well Paul let's move move on then so we've had your first Eurovision memory you know you mentioned a few years as well there that became kind of your formative years with Eurovision but what was the moment that you first fell in love with the contest because you know I think these are very kind of two very distinct things there's the moment you first kind of recognize Eurovision but then there is a special moment that I think everybody does have when they really do fall in love with the contest
2: oh that's an interesting question I think it would have been around about 96 I think uh, Gina G who well, are just a little bit that was a big hit at the time and it was on top of the pops every week and all of a sudden it was doing well in the charts and I think the week of Eurovision went to number one and that's when I was really convinced it was going to walk the contest and it was going to it was going to you know do amazing things on that scoreboard. and I remember um I had a friend over from school at the time and my mum was dropping him off and so we had to get in the car and I was you know a bit bereft having to leave the television set and hop in the car. So we listened to it on the radio and she came on, didn't realise she'd be on so early. And my heart sank when I heard her performance on the radio. you can imagine on the radio you know the vocals are much more pronounced but you've not got the the visuals to distract you in a sense and yeah my heart sank and that's when I I genuinely felt really sad and that's when I thought gosh I really care about this thing and I, I loved the song um, and then throughout that whole show that's when you know I really was paying a lot of attention when we eventually got home and uh, I think that was probably the moment that I sort of fell in love um but also I guess it's linked to childhood memories as well and being at school, Eurovision wasn't cool at all. And, you know, it wasn't really the done thing. But actually, Gina G, for my generation, made it okay to like it. And uh, it was a big hit. And, you know, it was kind of credible, I guess. And it was a shame that it didn't do better. But ultimately, the performance on the night wasn't great. But it was also at a time when the contest was slightly out of sync with the music buying public. And we didn't have the public vote. I think if the public had the t- their say and the choice in that, it would have done a lot better, if not won.
4: You mentioned the the devastation that she hadn't obviously done very well and hadn't hadn't won. Was that kind of reflective, I guess, of of the coverage at the time? I don't know if you can remember. Obviously, you know, you said you were very young, but I imagine looking back, you know, the UK and probably Sir Terry was on the telly telling everyone that we had that wrapped up that year.
2: I think so. Look at I mean, I remember she was performing, you know, in Oslo on various things like Top of the Pops and GMTV as it was back then. And I think there was definitely a momentum behind it, and the fact that it was doing so well in the charts. But I remember definitely thinking, "It's on Top of the Pops every week. This doesn't happen." And um, you know, so I think there was definitely an expectation there, and the fact that the record company was so invested as well. Uh, but I think that's why often record companies turn off Eurovision because they can't fix it. You know, they they don't really have a say in the result. And there's something quite refreshing about that. It is the public or the juries that choose. And um, I think that's, yeah, that's quite sort of refreshing in a way that they can't manipulate it in a way they do with other things like record sales and all that. So um, I think, yeah, the expectation was there. And that's maybe why I guess my um, (laughs) dismay at the result was uh, so pronounced because of those high expectations.
4: If we move on from moment that you first fell in love. So you've said that there. First Eurovision memory. And now, favourite Eurovision year. And I think this is... Well, this and the next question, I think, are the two most difficult questions we ask. Because, I mean, it's like asking... I don't know. I don't know what it's like asking. You know, if you've got a pet, it's like trying to choose between your favourite pet, It's it's such a difficult question. So, yeah, Paul, your favourite Eurovision year. And this can be for whatever reason you like. Maybe you were there in attendance. Maybe you were working at the contest. Maybe you were just watching at home as a fan you know, maybe it was the quality of the songs, whatever it is.
2: I think, well, I think there's two really in terms of going. um, So I've been to the contest since 2000. And I think, I mean, it's really difficult to choose which is your favourite one you've attended because they're all very different. Um, But I think probably 2008 for a number of reasons. But I think the one that stands out is just the people I was with. And I met a very good friend of mine, Elaine, there. And we became, you know, really good friends. We're very good pals now. So I think for me, that was a really special year, even though the contest, uh, take it or leave it, uh, Belgrade, take it or leave it. I mean, it wasn't the most inspiring place I've visited. That said, I'm glad I went and it was really interesting to go somewhere new um, and, you know, met some fantastic people there. But yeah, I think it's more about the social thing and the memories for me. So that's, yeah, that, that was also quite a happy time in my life looking back. I was doing my PhD, but I was a few years off from worrying about work and getting a job and life was good. And it was before the crash as well. So things seemed a bit more optimistic in those days. Um, and then, but I think probably in terms of music and the overall contest, and this is going to go way back in the archives, but it's 1985. Um, I really like that contest. It's probably ahead of its time in terms of how it was staged. Um, I love the presenter that year, Lil' Lindfors, the Swedish presenter. And I like more or less all of the songs apart from about three um, and in a contest of, you know, 20-odd songs, that's quite rare to like so many. But there's so many brilliant songs that year. And it's just quite a good kind of uh, good classic contest with uh, Bobby Sox winning for Norway, of course.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, mesdames and messieurs, meine Damen und Herren. Welcome to a very special evening coming to you from Gothenburg, Sweden. And this is really a special festival because, in fact, it is the 30th. Oh, that's a nice word for a Swede to say. 30th <laughs> Eurovision Song Contest
0: You
4: mentioned Lil for us there, which, you know, 100%, one of the greatest hosts I think the Eurovision Song Contest has ever seen. And, and when we had uh, Petra Med on the, on the contest in me last year, you know, she said that she was a real inspiration for her and, and everything that she went on to do, of course, at Eurovision in 2013 and, and 2016. You know, she, she was unlike any presenter that we'd seen at Eurovision at the time, because I suppose she, you know it's it's safe to say that the presentation before that was potentially a little bit stilted and a little bit prim and proper
2: absolutely and she injected a bit of personality a bit of sass and even you know she was quite sarcastic as well and she and there was the bit where she greeted the Norwegian winners and I don't think she meant it but it sounded horribly patronizing saying you know how she was delighted because it come last so many times and you know I think also there was the commentary from Terry Wogan now he wasn't actually at the contest he had really bad flu or pneumonia or something so he was at television center doing his commentary uh, but he was just very fun. Back in those days, I think he was quite funny. He became a little bit jaded, and I think his commentary changed and bordered on xenophobic later on. But I think in those days, he was quite good. And he summed up Lil at the start by saying, when she came on singing a song, and uh, you know, he called her the all-singing, all all-dancing all Lil, and saying that in her spare time, she had you know, done the flowers, painted the set, and collected <laughs> tickets on the door. And it was exactly that. She was like jack-of-all-trades. And I just thought, it was, uh, he was obviously joking, but it was... Very very funny, and it still makes me laugh today.
4: Always nice to kind of delve back into the archives. You mentioned 1985 there, and then next week's uh, little tease for everyone listening: next week's uh, the contest in me. We we head back and have a little conversation about 1975. So you can look forward to to that one, everybody. Uh, Paul, very very quickly, Belgrade, fascinating for a variety of reasons. But you know, I seem to remember watching that one on on TV at home, and that was. A contest that really kind of caught my imagination only because very similar to you you know fascinated by all things eastern european and and that was a a very again unique time for the contest wasn't it back in 2008
2: it was yeah that was also the first time they introduced two semi-finals and it was 100% televote as well so certainly for the grand final i think they used jury backups in the semis because i think sweden actually got rescued by the jury they wouldn't have qualified Without them, so there was a kind of wildcard thing. So quite interesting in terms of them playing around with the voting and trying to make it, I guess, fairer. And it did feel very much like an anticlimax when Russia won. I didn't think they had the best song, Um, and similarly with the UK. You know, I had a horrible feeling the UK was going to come last, not because it was a bad song, but just because it was so forgettable. And it was really well performed. Andy Abraham did a good job, but ultimately the song was so utterly forgettable that I just knew it, it wouldn't have had much of a chance. Uh, but some, yeah, fascinating experiences. Um, you know, it's interesting. You know, you often you hear things about countries in the news, and you can't necessarily judge people by their governments. And the people that I met in Serbia um, were, were lovely in general. Uh, fascinated by the fact that all these, you know, foreign guests were visiting for the first time. Really, um, it's a country with a real challenging history. And it's also quite politically tense as well, because Kosovo just declared independence. And there'd been riots in the march. You know, th- this is a very um, contentious issue in Serbia. And the Albanian delegation, unfortunately, the girl was booed when she took to the stage. So there was all of this stuff going on. That was interesting, as well as, you know, being in a taxi and seeing, you know, bombed out buildings from, I think, the NATO- um activity in ninety nine. So, you know, taxi drivers only too happy to point out that UK was part of that. You know, so you're sort of sinking back into your seat, thinking, please just take me to the station where I asked to go um, and not anywhere else. But um in general it was it was pretty pretty much an experience like no other. And um, but as I say it's for me, it's also about those friendships that I made. Um, and that's where I feel really lucky actually to have Eurovision because not only has it changed my life professionally, but personally it has as well. And I've made some really, really good friends through it. Yeah,
4: more than just a song contest. That's what, you know, we don't need to tell that to to you listening at home or wherever you're listening, and and obviously me and Paul don't think that either. But it is just such a a special, special thing that takes us to all of these places that, like you said there, Paul, we wouldn't necessarily otherwise get to go. Paul, it's the second of the two impossible questions. You did a great job of answering the first one, but this one is now your favourite Eurovision song. Maybe maybe you've just got one song that you absolutely love and this is going to be really quick for you to answer but maybe not
2: oh I don't I don't oh, I don't I don't even have a favorite winner as a couple but I think probably my favorite Eurovision song I guess I mean I mentioned it earlier but I guess Gina G who are just a little bit just because I think it stood the test of time it's still whenever I hear it makes me happy and I never tire of listening to it I've you know I've got Gina G's album and uh I was going to say CD, which uh, makes me sound very old, but it is a CD actually. And um, her album was fantastic. And it's a shame that she never really went on to have much of a career kind of following her initial singles because she had great potential. And uh, yeah, I think Gina do are just a little bit, just for the reasons I mentioned, but I think, um, yeah, it stood the test of time and I really do believe it should have
4: done better. And it's another one of those Eurovision songs that transcends the contest, doesn't it? You know, I mean, we've seen that with, well, I guess both Spaceman this year and Euphoria, of course, going back. But, you know, it's one of those songs that actually, if you even if you're not into Eurovision, you still know the song.
2: Yeah, and it's also one of those things that, I mean, you mentioned Euphoria. When that won, and that did well in the UK charts, it got to number three. And friends of mine who really don't like Eurovision were like, oh, I really like that song. And when I say, oh, it won Eurovision for Sweden, they were kind of horrified, but they're also (laughs) quite surprised. So I think it's that thing. It really goes into the mainstream in a way that I think now, you know, what are we now, 26 years after Gene G? You know, people forget all about that being about Eurovision. They just remember the song. And I think in a way that shows you how strong the song is, that it's sort of almost become part of our soundtrack, really, for that time in our, in our lives. And certainly even just watching a recent series of Derry Girls and that song was on, it just shows you it's very much a part of, you know, the soundtrack to certainly teenagers at the time growing up in the nineties. Gina G was well up there.
4: And every single family party as well. It always makes it on the playlist without fail, regardless of the occasion or whoever's birthday or whatever the celebration is. It always seems to be on there.
2: And weddings too. Always at a wedding.
4: A wedding favourite. Absolutely. Uh- Paul now we've already kept to you for you know a long time because we've loved hearing so many of the memories but we've just got a few more questions that we have to dash through before we say goodbye and i've said that we've got through the difficult questions this is pretty tricky your most memorable Eurovision moment now this may be i don't know when you were interviewed at a Eurovision like you mentioned previously you know you appeared on the BBC se- semi-final coverage for for many years maybe it was just attending as a fan maybe it was some of the friendships maybe it was a moment in the show itself what what is it
2: oh a very difficult question um i guess there's a few a few we're trying to think back to when i was working there i mean there's some funny stories i can think of when um, you know what, you' were interviewing a lot of the artists backstage and there was some were nicer than others and you' you kind of get an affinity for those who um aren 't so nice and uh, <laughs> and when they don't qualify you can it's a, it's, quite, it's quite a kind of satisfying feeling but no, i 'll be nice i I'll, I'll think about a nice example i guess it's the um the first year I went in Stockholm in two thousand the opening of that show at the, at the point it was at the biggest arena ever. To have hosted Eurovision, it was at the Globin or the Globe Arena, as it's known now, and um, it was a huge arena. And we had done this very quick rehearsal, basically at the start of the show. They said, "We're going to please, instead of applauding, just be completely silent." And then, when the woman on stage says "Hello, Europe," then just go, go, go for it, and you know, cheer and clap and all that. And we did it and I thought this is strange it feels very weird and then you know in rehearsal and then we did it live and it was just electric and that atmosphere and that kind of um, spectacle is for me what eurovision is about the you know the atmosphere at a live final is just incredible and it's 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 like the happiest place on earth it really is and i think that's what i really love about it is that you know there's a feeling that people are watching in rome or reykjavik you know across the world You're there, you know, everyone's watching that room where you are, you're witnessing what's going on and just people getting together, having a good time and not caring about politics or not caring where people are from and just there together, enjoying that moment. And I think, yeah, that that opening in 2000, that really kind of sums up that. Israel, Netherlands, United Kingdom, Estonia, France,
1: Norway, Russia, Belgium, Cyprus. Welcome, Euro!
4: I've mentioned that that opening from 2000 before, and I'm so pleased you've mentioned it, Paul, because that is my favourite Eurovision opening of all time. You know, I've obviously watched it back so many times, you can find it on YouTube as well, but like you say, it, it just it encapsulates the joy that is Eurovision and people coming together. But also because it was two thousand, there was something that felt incredibly futuristic about the whole thing as well. I remember the even the music that was used, you know, on the on the broadcast itself and, and everything like that. It just felt like we were really, and obviously we literally were, entering a new millennium and and there was so much hope encapsulated in that opening.
2: Absolutely. And it was very much, um, you're completely right, Rob, it was very much futuristic. And look at the graphics on screen, the way they presented it, it was very, very modern and certainly a real departure from what we'd had previously. And I think RT did a great job in the 90s and BBC did as well in 98. They really changed things up in terms of the scoreboard and the on-screen graphics. But really, I think Sweden and SVT really raised the bar further and a lot of contests have really tried to emulate that. And I think for the time, it was brilliant. And the the postcards were clever. Uh, There's a real mixture of songs and styles. And I think um, that was really the kind of, I think, the seed change in terms of how the contest would develop and evolve. And, you know, since then, we've had bigger and bigger arenas. Uh, To the point in 2001 where it slightly was ridiculous having 30,000 people. And that sort of lost atmosphere. And I'm glad they've not gone back to that. I think, you know, that was uh, something to try out. And, uh, but it was never as good as Stockholm. They had a real kind of intimacy, but also that sense of occasion and the kind of grandiose spectacle of it as well. So um, yeah, I think it was a real breakthrough competition and Sweden always do well when they stage the event.
4: You mentioned how SVT kind of raised the bar in 2000. You know, you mentioned as well the BBC before that doing the same in, in 98 and RTE doing, doing similar, which brings us very nicely on to, of course, here we are 2022, but we know that next year, the United Kingdom somewhere will be hosting the Eurovision Song Contest once again. But how does the UK keep up its momentum? This is the one question that we changed from the series that we did last year, because last year this was, how does the UK get itself back up the scoreboard? Well, Sam Rider did it, we finished second, but impossible, surely, to, to repeat that, especially as the hosts as well, because, Paul, you know, you don't need me to tell you, and, and you know this very well, that hosting Eurovision means that often a good result does not follow.
2: Yes, that's true. But that's, you know, often if the country has won and now we're in slightly different territory here. for The first time since 1980 that we've got a host country that didn't win the year before. So I don't know. I think often, how do you say that? I mean, the host country, I think, sometimes put in slightly sedate entries, not on purpose. I don't believe in the theory that they don't necessarily want to win, but I think it is sometimes true. But I think also, you know, sometimes things just get forgotten, like the Austrian entry getting zero points in 2015, you know, on home soil. Um, you know, I think these things do happen. But I think you also have that rush of the home audience. And that's what I used to love at Eurovision as well. When the home team comes on, the roar is deafening and it's really exciting. So we'll have an element of that, I think. But I think it'll be fascinating to see how they put it together in general. But I think in terms of how we continue to build momentum, I think continue what we did last year uh, or this year, uh, be consistent. And I think we need to keep on, we've flip-flopped around too much over the years. And I think we need to keep on the same track, give it a couple of years. And if that isn't working, then reevaluate it. But it needs time to kind of embed, it needs time for people to get used to this, for the record companies to get interested. And I think it'd be interesting to see if Sam Rider, you know, how he does with his new single and his album. I really hope he does really well. It was brilliant to see him on the Jubilee concert Um, I really hope he does very well because I think that will also impact on who potentially would be interested and be put forward for next year as well. Uh, But certainly in terms of how the BBC stage it, I think they do event television brilliantly. So I think the actual production will be brilliant. It'll be fantastic. But I think it'll also be interesting how they navigate the Ukrainian situation as well because it can't all be about the UK. There obviously will be a Ukrainian flavor to it. And whether it's a Ukrainian presenter or they have Ukrainian postcards, who knows, Ukrainian inter- interflats. What would be quite cool, I think, is actually having a Ukrainian band representing the UK.
4: That would be good, wouldn't it? That's a genius idea.
2: I think uh, Ukraine's got a lot of talent as well, as have we, of course. But I think uh, Ukraine knows how to stage an entry. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think hand it over to the Ukrainians and uh, let them work their magic.
4: You mentioned as well, maybe a, maybe a Ukrainian presenter on, on the stage alongside, I don't know, we can only assume Graham Norton will be there in some form or another. Maybe, you know, Timur Moroshnachenko, who, uh, you know, the Ukraine's Eurovision commentator, he's hosted the contest himself, obviously, back in, in 2017. We've had him here on the podcast. You know, who knows? Maybe he'll find his way on the stage as well.
2: I do, yeah, I do hope so. And I guess it also depends on the host city. And you know, if it is Glasgow, then I will be leading the campaign for Lorraine Kelly to be doing it.
4: She's a big Eurovision <laughs> fan,
2: but, you know, who knows? That's another thing. It's just quite exciting to think who is going to be the face of Eurovision next year, regardless of what city it's in.
4: It would be very special if Lorraine Kelly gets to host Eurovision itself, you know, after the days of liquid Eurovision in 2004 in Istanbul, I think it was.
1: Although they're welcome to Eurovision on location, this is where all the artists are staying. Beautiful pansies everywhere. The flowers are out, it's gorgeous. <laughs>
4: it's true. we look like we're flogging timeshares now.
3: <laughs> look right. up
0: there,
4: the enormous Polat Renaissance Hotel. If those walls
2: put... <laughs> Yeah, and uh, giving the voting as well. And I think it was a Gemini's year that she held up a glass, I think it was a box fizz or something fizzy, saying that uh, we're going to celebrate regardless. And it's like, yep, <laughs> I'm sure she did.
4: Yeah, she's put in the hard yards, definitely. Paul we've come to the the final question which is one that I've heard a variety of different answers because everyone has their own ideas about how they would run Eurovision you yourself have worked for the EBU of course the organisation that puts on the contest but if there is one change that you'd like to see what is it because as i say we've had so many different answers with this but just for the next couple of minutes, you can put yourself in Martin Osterdahl's chair. There's no reference group. You don't even have to go through them. You can just make a change (laughs) straight away. What are you going to do?
2: I think, firstly, if I can just say, I think sometimes there's a lot of conspiracy theories about how Eurovision works behind the scenes. And I think, especially this idea of the running order being fixed and things and you know, I, I read the fan things online and I see things on Twitter and people talk about how, you know, all the EPU wants Sweden to win. And it's just not true when it comes to things like the running order. It's done by things like practicality, you know, how many props they've got, which color dress this thing is wearing, you know, whether it's up tempo. There really isn't any conspiracy theory. So I'd like to just put that out there first of all, because I think all too often, I think sometimes Eurovision fans read into things. And it's a TV show. Martin ossedal isn't there rooting for Sweden. He's there rooting for the contest and wants to do a good job. But in terms of um, what I would change, I would say, and it may be controversial here and it may be, might make me sound like a um, an old um, fogey, uh, but I would say the rule they introduced in 2021 about pre-recorded backing vocals Um that, I understand why that was introduced. It was during the pandemic and it was to make sure that delegations weren't bringing groups of people, etc., cetera, to cut down on numbers. But I just don't like it. I think the the idea is, I, I get the idea, but I just think it's slightly flawed because the thing that I found really unique and special about Eurovision was that all the vocals were live. And that makes it different from things like you know, X Factor and all those types of shows. And... With that, it was also more exciting as well, because you were you weren't sure what the performance was going to be like. And I think you saw in 2021, and to a certain extent this year, there were certain singers who were really relying on those backing vocals. To the point I think the Bulgarian girl in 2021 was almost not singing her song. And I just think this, you know, this is really about the live moment. That's why I think Eurovision continues to be popular, is it's because it's so live, you know, it's so unpredictable. And part of that is Who's going to give a duff performance and who's not? And I think having that, I guess, reliance upon those pre-recorded backing vocals perhaps might mean that people who are not great singers will have no fear about coming forward, and um, they probably don't anyway. But I think um, so that they might be more inclined if they have that kind of cover. And uh, so I would say that would be the one thing that I would change: go back to how it was before twenty twenty one.
4: Yeah, let us know what you think then of, of Paul's suggestion, the, the thing that he would change. You can tweet us, of course, at Eurotrip Podcast. Twitter and Instagram, we're on there. And also you can send us an email, hello at com, with any of your longer form thoughts as well. Paul, it has been an absolute joy because you are a man that i've seen on tv growing up watching the eurovision song contest i don't don't mean to make you feel old paul but honestly to
2: say, you made me feel very old i now. don't
4: mean to make you feel old <laughs> at all but no i just wanted to express my gratitude for uh for doing doing great things for eurovision on uh on british television and, and in the media wherever it is that you you're often found chatting about it and and it has been brilliant to find out more about you and your love of eurovision so so thank you so much for joining us on the contest and me
3: thank you for having me it's been a pleasure thanks rob
2: you're listening to the contest and me a podcast from the euro trip
3: as i said last week and as i think i probably said the week before and as i will for the next few weeks as well the contest and me is one of the favorite things we get to do here in the podcast because paul just as we've done with the the rest of the guests Give us so much great conversation there so many great insights into the way eurovision has has weaved its way through his
4: life yeah what is so great and i think as you said i think i've also already said this but the answers that these guests give just resonate with so many of your own experiences as well you know you listening I'm sure some of what Paul said you're like yeah no I remember that or yeah I appreciate that or my experience was a bit like that as well so if you are in that position then do get in touch at your trip podcast twitter and instagram on the email hello at your podcast.com but some of the highlights in there I mean there was some great stuff Sonia getting her second mention in just three episodes on this <laughs> new series the 1993 <laughs> contest in Mill Street getting a big shout out yeah I do wonder about
3: these sort of things because sometimes we think everybody has a different connection to and and the way that eurovision brings them in could just be something so random but clearly there are certain points such as 1993 such as Lorene, of course she's come up a, a lot in the series so far that really have a huge impact on people and and really drag people in much more than than other occasions
4: in eurovision history have done and absolutely loved paul talking about his interaction with the eventual winner of 1993, <laughs> Neve Kavanagh. James. I know that was one of your favourites, one of my favourites as well. Him talking about that moment that he finally got to meet Neve in Oslo in 2010, and it sounded like Neve just didn't want anything to do with that conversation <laughs>
3: whatsoever. And I don't think that's uh, you know any sort of uh, description of Neve herself. We we've chatted to her on the podcast. You had a great conversation with her last year, and she was lovely. But obviously at the time Paul was talking to her, she was the height of competition. So I imagine she was fully focused on the on the job in
4: hand. I just love that Paul confronted her with, a, with the anecdote <laughs> of, you made me cry 17 <laughs> years ago. Perhaps that was the reason that
3: she was sort of a bit flustered and floundered when he came over that. Maybe a, be- a better opening line would have done.
4: Yeah, quite possibly. <laughs> but such, such a good chat. So thank you to Paul for joining us on this week's episode of The Contest and Me. And lucky you, we are only halfway through the series we've had three guests we've got three more to come and maybe maybe a special little bonus at the end of that as well oh of
3: course it's the euro trip of course it's going to be a
4: bonus <laughs> what would
3: it be without a bonus
4: episode from
3: the euro trip yeah we've uh, we've already recorded next week's so i sat down with a, a special person uh, a couple of days ago and let me tell you why are you laughing at special person it is a special just,
4: person isn't it i just enjoyed special person uh, special <laughs> guest sounds better but i enjoyed special person
3: yeah, it was my way of trying not to give it away. I nearly gave away the gender, and I feel like that would have narrowed it down, and people would have started to figure it out from other things. Well, kids they're definitely a guest, regardless. <laughs> <laughs> so, what I'm trying to say is, I sat down with somebody, and I've got a great conversation coming your way in
4: just seven days' time. So, next week, look forward to listening to they, them, she, her, he, or him. <laughs> on next week's episode of Eurotrip. I think
3: you've covered off enough bases there for people to try and figure out who it is. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, please do. Seven days time, we'll be back with a brand new episode of the Eurotrips, the contest and me. So in the meantime, uh, Rob's mentioned it enough times, so have I. We're at Eurotrip Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Hello at com on the email if you want to get in touch. And make sure you subscribe, leave us a review and rate us five stars. From me, James, it's goodbye.
4: And from me, Rob, it's goodbye.
0: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.